G'day everyone. Before we start, I have a few quick announcements. This has been a great year for in-situ science. We embarked on a brand new mission to not just talk about scientific research, but to actually raise money to try and support it. At the end of last year, we gave out three research grants to early career scientists. We followed their research over the summer and made a series of short films about their work. You can now see them online at insituscience.com. I was absolutely flattered that we were nominated as a finalist in the science and medicine category of the Australian Podcast Awards, which, I guess, means we're one of the best science and medicine podcasts in Australia. I want to thank you all for your support. It's been wonderful going on this journey, and the kind words I hear from you guys really helps keep my spirits up and motivates me to keep this whole in-situ science thing going. As regular listeners to the podcast will probably know, this is not my day job. This is not part of my daily grind of being a scientist. Nobody ever asked me to do this thing, and so far nobody's told me to stop, which is a good thing, I guess. This is a labor of love that I managed to piece together in whatever spare time I have, and I'd really like to keep this thing going on into the future, including finding ways of not only making more podcasts and videos, but also raising funds to support actual scientific research. And so now, in situ science is faced with a challenge to start raising funds to keep the lights on. So to do this, we've done what all good podcasts do, and we started a Patreon page. If you're a fan of what we do and want to help us keep the ball rolling and growing into the future, you can actually pledge your support. Patreon is an online service where you pledge as little as a dollar a month to support your favorite creators and projects. If you'd like to pledge your support to In-Situ Science, check out patreon.com slash in-situ science. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash in-situ science. I realize that giving money on a monthly ongoing basis is a big ask for some, so alternatively, if you'd like to give a one-off donation, just visit in-situscience.com and look for the big donate button. Any amount we receive is immensely appreciated and will go directly towards supporting science, research, outreach, and education. Now, people that know me will know that this is a hard thing for me to do. I don't like asking for help, but this one means a lot to me. And I guess this one isn't about me, it's about you guys and what you want in-situ science to be. And if you like what we do and want to see more of it happen, then Patreon or direct donations are your way to contribute to it. And if nothing else, get in touch, drop us an email, tell us what you'd like to see from in-situ science. Give the podcast a review and let us know why you listen in the first place and what we can do to make it better. As I said before, thank you for all your support and encouragement. It's been a real pleasure and I look forward to what the future holds. But enough from me, let's get on with the show. Welcome back, you're listening to In-Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and find out what it is they do and why on earth they do it. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode, I'm joined by herpetologist, evolutionary biologist, and good friend, Fonty Carr. Fonty, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I don't, I don't know what it's like to be on a podcast. <laughs> is this, this is your first podcast? <laughs> I, I would say so, yes. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm, I'm flattered. <laughs> now, I want to ask, I want to start by asking questions that I never think to ask just in normal conversation. Where's the name come from? My name? Fonty. Is it Italian? What is it? (laughs) This has been a question I've thought about all my life. (laughs) (laughs) 
get um, my my mum made it up. She said she had a friend called Fonty, but I've never met such person. Okay. <laughs> so it must be not a friend anymore, or than <laughs> when she passed by. Yeah. And it doesn't mean anything in uh, Chinese. So yeah. we're from. I'm originally from Hong Kong, and it doesn't mean anything in in that language, and it doesn't mean anything really. All right. It just. It's a good signing name. I can totally understand where your mum <laughs> is coming from. I really, I really hated it as a kid. Because <laughs> <laughs> teachers would be like, well, can you spell that for us? <laughs> and that's embarrassing. You just want to fit in when you're a kid. Yeah. <laughs> so you're saying you're originally from Hong Kong, mm-hmm. but you grew up in New Zealand. Yes. 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 And how long have you been in Australia then? Uh, it's been about five years now. Mm-hmm. Time zipped past. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, it's Sydney's home at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> and you came over to Australia to do your master's, right? That's right. Yeah. I, I said to my favorite lecturer at the time, Greg Howell, one of my favorite lecturers at the time, I want to keep doing behavioral ecology. Where should I go? And he said, oh, there's a big hub of them at Macquarie. You should check that out. And it kind of just set me off mm-hmm. on this this sort of journey. Yeah. So your mission was simply to go to Macquarie Uni. You didn't have <laughs> a thing you wanted to study or work on? No. Anything behavioral, animal behavior related was, t- was, was that was my criteria. Yeah. And and he, he equipped me with a, a good list of people to check out. And I also did some of my side research of people to talk to. And like, so I just met with everyone and decided, okay, I think I'll I'll stick with work I'll work with Martin Whiting and work on lizards. Mm. <laughs> and that that's how it's all started. All right. So you decided to work with Martin Whiting, who we've had on the podcast. Yes. And obviously everyone knows he's the lizard guy. Yes. So through working with Martin you became a lizard person by <laughs> default, I guess. But yeah, by association, it just happens that way. Yeah. Um, I I just thought, oh, I c- coming from New Zealand, you could either work on birds, um, some invasive species, a lot of insects. Um, but I just wanted to work on something different. And mm. I thought, okay, I'm in Australia, crazy lizard biodiversity. Mm. And so that was, that was it. And Martin was... A, great had great facilities and a great person to work with and it's just a very logical decision for me yeah so which lizards are you working on uh at the time i was working on these these skinks called water skinks Mm. uh they i found them on campus found them on golf courses it was it was very easy to collect them that way Mm. Uh, the nuts i didn't have to go and venture out to big deserts or forests so these are probably the kind of things that you might see in an urban backyard yes very common backyard friends. They're not the little tiny ones. They're the more medium-sized mm, skinks, right? Quite beefy, I'd say. Oh, I don't know how you can describe a lizard on a podcast. <laughs> size of your of thumb? <laughs> I don't know. Thumb-sized skink? <laughs> the, the width of a wine bottle, top of a wine bottle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I know what you mean. The chunky ones... You find under rocks. Yeah, yeah. the black and green are sort of mottled and yeah. they've got big cheeks and often by water, water yeah. sources. So for your masters, what were you looking at in these lizards? I was looking at their male fighting behavior. Oh. So males engage in, in these contests, a mm. lot, lot of male animals do. And I was kind of looking at well, what makes 
a male win in these sorts of interactions and what are the consequences of winning and that was my master's project and and what was the answer so after uh, after a lot of lizard fight clubbing <laughs> <laughs> um we found that males that it's not has so we size matched all the males in these fights and it has to do with the, the male that engages first, mm. that has that initial confidence that engages in these interactions, tend to always win. And they have this sort of winning streak effect that if you've won once, you tend to be a bit more amped up to win and oh. engage first in the next interactions. So is that more important then than just being big? Yes. It's, um, that's really good news for the little guys <laughs> out there. You just have to <laughs> act confident <laughs> until until the other dude also has to, uh, is also engaged in a fight. And then that when those contests get escalated, it's it's all about size and, yeah. and mass and stuff like that. It's just about having your game face on. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's and so we're individual lizards that instigated first that were more fighty. Was were they always more fighty, or is this context dependent? Were there some that just had sort of dodgy personalities that <laughs> like to fight? Well, that's something I didn't investigate, but it was definitely. It, it is once you've won a fight, you are consistently. It keeps you going, mm. and and I guess in that sense, it is context dependent. If you've lost, then you can do. You just you know you win a game of cards. You tend to just feel crap about yourself <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because y- you can imagine telling these stories about people yes you can think about i don't know prize fighters or boxers or whatever having the confidence to win a fight simply because they won previous fights yes. applying those sorts of personality traits to lizards yeah seems strange but i guess there's no reason why we couldn't right mm, absolutely because i mean we're not that different are we <laughs> speak for yourself (laughs) (laughs) yes a lot of that fighting contest research it's very easy to for people to make the link and with with humans and Mm. and and human contests and yeah i i think i really liked that aspect of it that people can relate to to losing fights and losing interactions like that Mm. and so that was your master stuff that was the first part of it Oh, yeah. What was the other part? The other part <laughs> was then looking at, you know, now that you've won and lost, won or lost a fight, what are the consequences of that on, on how you learn from another individual? So, d- dwelling into animal intelligence and, and lizard intelligence stuff. <laughs> okay, you're going to have to explain that. So, if you. <laughs> how you, your success in a fight affects how you l- learn. What's the link there? Why would it affect how you learn? Because I was thinking, you've you've kind of okay, you've lost a fight, but what if you see this lizard, you see the same, you f- see this same opponent in the wild, and they're doing, say, they're foraging or finding, they're they're quite successful with the ladies or something. Mm. Are you, as a subordinate or a, a losing lizard, able to then? figure out that lizard is successful in more ways than other and and learn from that lizard as a sort of like a i guess not a status symbol i guess a a signal that they can tune in on for their learning benefits so if i've 
Say I've, I've beaten a lizard in a fight. And then I see that lizard foraging. Do I trust that lizard's foraging decisions because I know they're dead? Yeah. They're Is th- am I understanding that right? Yes. They're not a dud, though, because they beat you in a fight. So like, they oh, but, if, do- but if I've beaten them, okay. am I less likely to trust them Yeah, because I... I disrespect them. Cause <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're no good. <laughs> the flip side of that argument is they might be. There's this whole argument of brain versus brawn. If mm. you're, if you're a dud at fight that you're, if you're a great fighter, do you just kind of scrounge for information from from less able lizards mm. in the environment and just copy them? And so then if that's a question. Do they? Is that what actually happens? Um, no. no? Okay. <laughs> All right. Forget everything we just said. <laughs> they didn't like learning from each other. Oh. The 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 kind of contest and dominance hierarchy sort of interaction was too severe for them to just want to learn from each other. Yeah. We had little subordinate shy lizards just hiding underneath the stuff they were living in. And <laughs> Trying to look at the other lizard, but often it was they were just too stressed, and or what we thought were they were stressed, yeah. and that affected their learnings. So, how social are these lizards then? They they occur in high densities, so I would say they they do see each other often, depending mm. on the location. But they, I don't think they um they live in groups per yeah. se like some other lizards do. Well, they're they're the lone wolves of lizard world in a sense yeah they do their own thing but they they come together if they they cross each other's paths Mm. or if they have to share territories i guess that makes sense then that they wouldn't tune in to other lizards and learn from them if they're self-sufficient yeah absolutely but i don't want to anthropomorphize them too much (laughs) (laughs) like i said we're more like them (laughs) 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 i really think (laughs) And so you finished your master's and you decided to stay in Australia yes. to do your PhD. Yeah, yeah. Now there's there's an unspoken rule in science that you don't go up and ask someone how their PhD's going. <laughs> so I'm trying to think of a way to <laughs> word it differently so I don't ask the question you're not supposed to <laughs> ask. <laughs> uh, is the PhD going... It's going. It's, go- <laughs> it's going. <laughs> that question used to be a lot more loaded, but I think I'm in a way a really good place right now. <laughs> there was one day someone asked me that uh, question. I just, I just turned around. I said, "I'm so sorry. I'm just not in the right place to answer that question." <laughs> and it's not you. It's totally me. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's a personal question, right? It's not. Like it's not a job you just turn up to and clock off at the end of the day. It's a project that you own and you're in charge of so yeah you definitely live and breathe it and it comes up comes home with you at night comes into you know you fall asleep sort of thinking about it Mm. yeah but i'm good i'm doing my phd at unsw i'm in my two and a half year mark i've got a year and a half left Mm. and i'm also working on lizards right now same lizards or different lizards different lizards um these the ones I'm working on now are called delicate skinks, and they're these teeny tiny little coppery brown skinks you find in your garden. And they're 
They're fragile. They're egg-laying. They're super cute. Mm. These are the ones that people have probably picked up as kids and they drop their tails and run yeah. off those ones. Yes. What are they? I think someone who grew up in Australia told me that they're called um, penny lizards because they're about the size of penny oh. when they're babies. Yeah. Yeah. Poor things. <laughs> <laughs> I just knew them as lizards growing yeah. up. That's what I, that's <laughs> In my head, that's what a lizard is because that's what you see in the backyard, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so what are you looking at with these guys? At the moment, I'm trying to look at how the early developmental environment, so at the egg stage, when the lizard's an embryo, how temperature can affect their development and oh. have these cascading effects on their physiology and behavior and uh, their life history, so how fast they grow and when they reproduce. So mm. temperature... Obviously, can affect lizards' biological sex. Yes, right? yes, they do. In crocodiles, some sea turtles. Um, f- fortunately, these guys, um, they don't. Mm. Which is already a very interesting evolutionary question that some people are working on. Like, yeah. where, where does the temperature sex determination stuff uh, evolve? So these guys have run-of-the-mill chromosomal yeah, sex determination stuff. stuff, just like us. Yeah, <laughs> but. It can have effects just on their general condition and mm. growth. What, how does it affect them? So a hunch is that it affects um, when you're at that very early stage. It's a really critical developmental phase where your your brain is still growing, your neurons are developing, your physiological system is still kind of setting in place. So it, um, temperature can affect how you use energy so your metabolic rate mm. and energy is just you know it's the fuel for everything and if that if uh, the environment can affect that and then your behavior depends on energy when you reproduce and how much you grow and how fast you grow all depends on energy we, we think that's the key thing and is it a simple case of the warmer the better if you're a lizard no because it's like it's a bit of a a strategy, I mm. think. I, if you develop in a warmer temperature, your, fa- your metabolism tends to be faster. But that's no good when food is scarce. Mm. So it actually might be a good time to have a slow metabolism if, if in areas of low food availability. Mm. So I don't think it's, um, it's not very clear-cut to say that's better, that's good. But a lot of people are really interested in this stuff right now because of climate change and anthropogenic change and temperatures is just a lot more variable. So, yeah. So, if you're looking at the egg stage, Mm. does that mean you have essentially a a little maternity ward of lizards that you're rearing at different (laughs) temperatures? Yeah. (laughs) At one point, we had something like 200 eggs (laughs) that we had to care for, and they're the size of Tic Tacs. Yeah, and we put them in these little cups and bake them at different temperatures and wait for them to hatch. Mm. And we've got kind of a, a warmer temperature and a cooler temperature that we've picked from their natural temperature range. Mm. We didn't really push them to the limits of climate change predictions. And as you expect, things that develop at a cooler temperature takes longer to to develop, and so they tend to come out a lot bigger lot more heavier right. yeah at the moment still kind of looking at um their metabolic rate and behavior stuff at the moment does that mean 
that they might actually be better quality individuals then if they come at bigger and buffer? Oh, that's that's the million dollar question, I think. Mm. Um, and they might be more inclined to have more high quality offspring. That's that's what we're thinking that they're on this trajectory to savor their energy resources. Mm. Yeah. What does this then mean for adult lizards that are laying eggs? Are they going to be strategic in where they lay them wow, or when they lay them? This is a very good question. Um, that's that's um, a really interesting aspect of it because mm. that's where mothers choose to lay their eggs can affect their baby's um, development and, and survival. Um, and that's probably one of the reasons why um, live birth and lizards evolved. It's that mother, mothers can have a lot more control mm. the temperature the babies develop at. Um, something I want to look into afterwards. But often mothers, their own mothers have a, an effect on them. So it, we try to remove that sort of confounding effect by mm. just taking the eggs and manipulating them ourselves. Where do they lay their eggs? <laughs> These lizards are in our backyards. Yeah, flower pots is a good place to <laughs> start looking. Yeah, <laughs> and they do dig. And the, this particular species, they do communal laying, oh. which is super cool. Yeah. I've never se- I've I've seen photos of these communal nests, um, and the it's just a safe, safety in numbers situation, and um, they can feel each other's vibration. This is a study that showed that. Um, eggs on the outside if they can feel vibrations that may indicate that a predator is nearby it triggers hatching synchrony in them mm. so they hatch at the same time and get away <laughs> at the same time at the cost of developing a little bit smaller again this is something that i feel like we should have seen in our own backyards but i have never seen little tic-tac sized baby lizards <laughs> hatching out of my flower pots yeah I don't know what to say. We just, sometimes we just need to pay a bit more attention <laughs> and spend a bit more time <laughs> in our backyards. Yeah. Thinking. Um, they're all over the UNSW campus as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just take some time to go out and look for them. <laughs> <laughs> and are there lots of different types of these little tiny backyard lizards? As far as I know, yes. Mm. Like the, the, there are... Four, and I'm not a very good herpetologist because <laughs> I don't think I can <laughs> say all their names. <laughs> That's all right. I'm a terrible entomologist. So <laughs> <laughs> people assume I'm just like, people always ask me, oh, what lizard is this? And I'm like, it's a skink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get I get blurry photos of some black blob on a wall. You know, and what's this? A spider, maybe? A mosquito? Who knows? <laughs> So is on that, is it more about the question then than the study species itself? Because particularly in herpetology, I feel like there's a lot of just pure lizard nuts that just anything to do with lizards and snakes, they're all over it. Yeah, and I admire those people to have such pure passion yeah. for just finding all the lizards in the world. Yeah. Um, yes, I'm definitely very quest- more question-driven than mm. taxonomic. And it makes it tricky because I feel like I'm just really interested in a lot of things. Mm. It's very hard to hone down and it's still something I'm trying to grapple with. How often do you think about what makes a good question? 
Oh. And is it something you can articulate or is it just a vibe you get? I think partly vibe. Mm. I think a good question is if it kind of keeps you thinking, you're mulling it. It's like shopping. If you want to (laughs) buy, you you don't buy it initially and you kind of like think, I really want that thing or you really want to answer it. You kind of do your own research. And that process creates even more question. I think for me, that kind of defines a good question. And if if people are at all paying attention to it as well. I feel like there are certain questions too where when it is presented to you or when an idea pops in your head, straight away you start designing the experiment (laughs) and you know straight away how you would test it. Yes. And once that happens, then... It's like, well, I have to do this now. I can't not because the idea is there. Yeah, I need the answer. Yeah. I do have an ideas folder where I just sort of slowly populate <laughs> with things like, oh, I just have to come back to this. i got to do my PhD now, but i got to come back to this. Yeah. I, I have a Word document floating around <laughs> <in> my computer. <laughs> future ideas. <laughs> things that I might like to work on one day. <laughs> and then do you also have that for non-scientific things? Oh, you mean like crafty art yes. ideas? <laughs> Sometimes a lot of recipes that yeah. are like, oh, I really want to try and make this. And <laughs> Pinterest is just a, a rabbit hole of craft yeah. ideas. <laughs> <laughs> How important is it to have extracurricular activities while you're doing your PhD or just being a scientist in general? So important, I think. It's mm. that distance gives you when you're doing something else, whether that's sports or craft afternoon or just an afternoon baking mm. gives you time away. That And when you come back to your work, you do have a different perspective or clarity. Mm. Um, yeah. There are days where you just look at the same piece of writing. It's kind of just going in circles, but going mm. for a walk is that sort of distance is invaluable. There are definitely those scientists that never switch off. You know, they finish their work at five, go home and open up the laptop again and just keep writing and working. Yeah, wow. Yes, And unfortunately, I feel like they're the ones that succeed because they can outcompete mm. everyone else. And I kind of wish I could be one of those Me too. scientists. Yeah, I kind of don't feel alone. <laughs> <laughs> But it also means that when you do find time to do your extracurricular stuff, there's there's guilt there. Yes. How do you deal with that? Do you deal with that? <laughs> well, I'm asking for life advice here. Oh man, and I need I'm desperately in need of life advice too. <laughs> <laughs> it's all this whole mindfulness movement, eh? It's mm. like you when you're crafting, you craft with your all your heart <laughs> and all your attention because you want to produce the best craft right yeah. um and i think when you do science the best sort of science the best science i know i've done is when i'm fully paying my attention and on a roll mm. and you just kind of chip away at it and if that's and we should just value that some people do need that distance to do extracurricular and it is hard to feel like it yeah i should be working but mm. it's not productive work so you might as well be there and focus on productive crafting <laughs> what, what's your craft of choice 
Do you have a medium? I dabble. (laughs) (laughs) I was working on a cross stitch for for our friend Kate for a while. Mm. That that turned from birthday gift to Christmas gift to baby shower gift. (laughs) (laughs) Took a while. It took a while. Um, at the moment, sewing, sewing, yeah. just making so like cushions and pencil cases. I really want to make some totes. Seems like it's I funny. The one I, I, I'm the same. I dabble in a whole lot of stuff, but the one thing I've never gotten into is baking. Like you said, you can just spend an afternoon baking and to do that. There's there's something about cooking that's never grabbed me mm. as a, as a creative. And I don't know why. Oh, well, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I don't. Know, I think it's the impermanence of it. All right. Like I like to have a thing that I can point at and go, "Look what I did." That's true. What I think. Oh, when I bake, I I definitely am in the zone. I have to. It's a, it's a real chemistry. It's following a recipe, and I really like the sharing the baking. That's mm. that's the major kick I get out of it. Is Spreading the joy, spreading the sweetness. <laughs> but you dance as well. Oh, I do. Yes. Yes, I. D- I've been doing. I've danced all my life as a kid, mm. and stopped when I went to uni. It's funny you go to do a degree and kind of do these hobbies sort of fall out of your life. Mm. They're the first things that want to fall out. Yeah. And so I always come back and like I always say I want to go back dancing need to and it's something that's definitely stuck around and been been a part of my life i feel like the older i get the more i revert to five-year-old me and i'm <laughs> starting to feel that way too <laughs> just like making childhood snacks like cheese and those little salami sticks <laughs> ah, it's from it's the craft stuff like i look back at the things that i made when i was a kid and it was little sculptures and paintings and things and I find myself drawn to doing that now. Is it because when we were kids that was just a very carefree stage? <laughs> <laughs> and and those are the things that make the biggest, I don't know, sort of impression on us. Yeah. Um, it feels natural mm. doing it. It's I'm not familiar. a yeah. Uh, well I think there's something to it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Does crafting and dancing fill the same sort of escapism away from your work? Oh, that's a good question. Or is they, are they different? They definitely, in the sense that I'm not thinking about my work, mm. they do serve the same purpose in that way. But I think it definitely uses um, a different parts of my brain. Mm. Um, Dancing involves, you know, coordination, which sometimes as a scientist, I don't <laughs> feel like I have. <laughs> coordination, and you know, in the sense I'm planning things, but physical coordination is something. Yeah. Yeah. Something I can only get from dancing. And whereas crafting is very, it's it's solving a problem and it is in a way managing a project. Mm. And that really sucks the fun out of it when you think of it that way. But the creative process is similar in the sense that you like designing an experiment yeah 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 i definitely see the parallel between making and science because you're producing something Mm. whether it's a work of art or a piece of craft you're you're making something that wasn't there before yes in the same way that when you do science you're generating knowledge that wasn't there before 
So true. I wonder how many scientists craft. I reckon a lot. And <laughs> I've, I, I realized with my own hobbies that there was this need to be productive with them. And the same way I had to be producing you know, some work that I could point at and say, oh, you know, look at that. Mm. Or I had to be achieving something. I didn't have hobbies that were just fun for the sake of being fun. Like <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't go for a run because I enjoyed running. Right. I would do uh, some other fitness activity that had some sort of goal yeah. in mind. I can, yeah. I agree with that. Like dancing, you produce something in the end yeah. that wasn't there before. Yeah. Choreography, organized chaos. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if that's a good thing or not. Am I am I just filling this void to feel productive in some way? Oh no, this is very philosophical and cerebral. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just be by myself and not do anything? Yeah. Just be with my thoughts. Ooh. Sounds terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> confronting <laughs> well i had i had this pointed out to me about video games because i thought playing video games was an escape for me because i'm not producing anything i'm not achieving anything mm-hmm. it's, it's just adventure time mm-hmm. stuff and then it got pointed out to me that i was actually just using video games as a another way to feel productive because yeah. when i looked at the kind of video games i was playing and the way i played video games I was jumping on the game and going, right, I've only got to collect 300 more of these and I get a new hat. <laughs> like it was, <laughs> you know, I, it was, or I, you know, I needed to build something in this video game or I needed to beat this time or something. It was always, a, I always had to achieve something. Yeah, I, I feel the same way about video games. And yeah. Video games is very <laughs> progress track focus. It gets mm. that like, you know. Zelda, uh, Pikachu, all those <laughs> quest-driven. Yeah, you have to collect something. You can't yeah. just. And you got to put in the hours. <laughs> Maybe we just. You got to be serious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not a very good video. I find it that's too. I get too into it. <laughs> too into the game. Quite, it's, it's quite stressful. Monsters popping out anywhere. Well, what, what sort of games do you play then? That, that was Zelda. Yeah. Um, was it Breath of the Wild? I play it on a Switch. Uh, I still haven't played it. It's beautiful. The it's graphics. one of the best games ever made, right? Oh, I don't know. It won some award oh, last wow. year. And that that's really, that's very escapism. Yeah. It is just this beautiful whole new universe. Yeah. What are the other games? I played Overcooked, which is this like cooperative team game where you run a kitchen. <laughs> With some friends and you're just yelling at each other. <laughs> and that's also a good one. But that's also quite stressful. Yeah. <laughs> you have to produce something. You have to achieve something. <laughs> but then again, I'm trying to think of a video game that doesn't have that. There's there's nothing that's just... It's the dopamine kick we get. Yeah. Of happy endorphins and uh. chemicals when we achieve something. <laughs> that's okay, though. So, bringing it back to science, when do you get your dopamine kicks? Oh, man. In science? Yeah. Because you don't finish an experiment every day. You don't publish a paper every day. No. But at the end of a day of a long day in the lab, definitely there's a dopamine kick there. Yeah. I was doing metabolism experiments that I have to be at the lab at like 6.45 and kind of wrap up at 
6.45 p.m. <laughs> and end of those days or the end of that stint feels really good. Um, something that comes to mind is making making my code. So I code a lot on R mm. to get my my stats running and make graphs. Those I get huge <laughs> kicks out of. Yeah, running a line of code and not getting an error message is a great dopamine hit. Yeah. <laughs> and and V8 free code and just like, freestyle type code as you're thinking like yeah. oh i need to do this or i wonder what that looks like is this coding is something you've always done or is this something you had to learn because you wanted to play with animals um it's i did a i did statistics as a double made one of one of my majors in my undergrad oh. and that was because i was like oh i'm not sure if i'm going to get do much with a biology degree <laughs> so let's just do this extra bit yeah um, but it turns out I really, I just, I really enjoyed that process mm. and it wasn't just to find out answers. It, it was that the intricacies of a model mm. is, um, something about that. Yeah. Having done it, having put all the right things in and all the right setups and making sure everything's done right. Mm. Yeah. Is it that methodical though, or is it more just like talking the language? Well, there is some method methodical steps to take. Mm. You don't want to be sifting around and snooping around your data to find what's significant. <laughs> um, but I th the process is is somewhat creative, and thinking about oh, what does it mean when I put a body size in this model? Mm. And that involves some careful attention. And you're also doing lots of outreach around this. So you've done some stuff with our Ludo and Code Club and getting other, I guess, getting kids involved in this mindset, right? Yeah. I, I didn't really expect I would enjoy that. Yeah. Mum always said, I can't imagine you as a teacher. <laughs> you're always so impatient with me, let alone kids <laughs> <laughs> but i get a real buzz from teaching seeing that light bulb moment or the penny dropping yeah um or their faces being really fascinated about what you talk about is mm. really really cool yeah and i wish i kind of got that as a kid as well so you didn't have a scientific mentor or, or a moment as a kid no i i think i surprised myself in being a scientist mm. i still find it hard to believe it was i think the moment I realized i wanted to be one was just like in a lecture there was some bbc documentary clip being mm. played and i had it just had that realization that that was someone's research mm. made me think oh man i wanted that that i want that job mm. yeah but you'd obviously reached uh, fascination level to get you enrolled in a science degree in the first place, right? I, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, I, science seemed it was that or project management. Oh, geez, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't accept me in that project management program. What? I, what is project management, Fundy? It's basically a, what we do, really, as yeah, a exactly. researcher, just managing your own big project. Yeah, so I. So I think project management in a corporate sense is learning all the strategies to see something through and to get that dopamine kick and <laughs> see that 
be productive in that way. It's so weird that that's a field of specialty. I remember chatting to a guy who was a project manager and he was managing some uh, software changeover at Microsoft or Google or some massive tech company. And, and I just said, oh, so you've, you've got an IT background. And he said, oh, no, God, no. <laughs> I, I project manage. It's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> and I just don't understand. It sounds, sounds like a lot of work, but I even I think I now now that we're talking about it as a in high school, I remember really enjoying organizing events and seeing things mm. through and getting all the bits and pieces together. So that was probably one of the reasons why I tried to get into that field. Yeah, and I can totally see how a degree in science is essentially a, a degree in project management because <laughs> yeah. yeah that's what you do you, yeah. you have a project and you run it and it's all about you yeah as the lead investigator and making it happen getting all the ingredients together yeah, yeah i guess everything in life is project managed yeah <laughs> so we were talking about having ownership of your phd project mm. uh, that you sometimes can't get out of your head a little bit you can't leave it at work are you still dreaming about baby skinks when you go to sleep thankfully not really yeah so thankfully i'm out of that experimental phase all the data is collected all right so maybe i'll start dreaming about numbers and (laughs) and words on a page (laughs) during experiments i remember dreaming about just like accidentally standing on a lizard or all the things that could possibly go wrong. <laughs> but that never happens. Yeah. <laughs> it's just my brain telling me. Yeah, I, I still have dreams about finding insects. Because I don't know, when you're working on insects that are hard to find and the challenge for your research is actually locating your study species, you, yeah. you build it up in your head and you take it personally yeah. when you can or can't find them. And so I still have these dreams where I, you know, I find this mother load of insects and I wake up feeling really happy and then I go, oh, geez, it was just a dream. Oh. I didn't actually find the insects. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> but you're now going into writing, analyzing phase. Mm. Writing and analyzing the, the kind of less hands-on stuff, mm. but definitely more minds-on, engaging with oh, paper and your keyboard and... And it's definitely the period where I can't ask how the PhD is going. It's, I mean... (laughs) Or how's writing going? (laughs) Or shouldn't you be writing? (laughs) It's, you gotta, you can't, I don't know, you just gotta, with writing, I think you have to really listen to yourself in the sense that, am I, am I have I had enough at this piece of writing mm. and switch to another task? Sometimes a change in scen- scenery just does it for me. Just mm. like the train up to Armadale to visit you guys was enough for me to like go for a manuscript. We were like, huh, I, that took, that was, that was what I needed. Mm. And that's kind of how I feel. Like yeah. I think I need to just keep doing that. I find that I work really well at going to a cafe Yeah, or some people just can't, work with all the noise and and clutter Mm. something about being in that noisy environment where i don't know people might be looking over your shoulder i should probably look like i'm working (laughs) type of thing is that social (laughs) pressure like i'm taking up this table i i I should do some work (laughs) i should probably order another cup of tea so i'm not taking up space (laughs) 
there's so many writing tri- tips and tricks that people have, and you just kind of just have to find your own ones. Yeah. You can try, but try everything with a pinch of salt until you settle on your own. I have to change mine every day, I think. Yeah. Because something that works one day, if I try it again the next day, I'll find a way to cheat. Yes. I thought the Pomodoro method was the best thing ever for about a day, and then day two, no, it didn't work. (laughs) I agree. And some people, there's this um, idea that you have to set a time to write. Mm. Uh, It doesn't work well for me. Yeah. For maybe a couple of days when you're on a writing streak where you just want to put mind on paper. Mm. But then, no, the the routine. I remember when I was writing up, I invented a thing just called backwards days <laughs> where I would stay home in the morning yes. and, and do stuff around the house and, you know, whatever, mm. and go into work at about one o'clock in the afternoon, but stay late into the night. Oh, that's great. As opposed to going to work first thing in the morning and coming home in the afternoon. Mm. And it... Something about it just worked great ah. for me. I had time to get stuff out of my head in the morning and then yeah. just work away into the night. Yeah, and I think that's the coolness about academia. You have that flexibility to try all these things. It's yeah. not like you have to be at a desk nine to five to yeah. do work. Yeah. Are you managing to do nine to five or are you one of those nine to hmm. nine thirty students? <laughs> oh, oh, I've definitely boundaries is good definitely don't stay (laughs) 12 hours good (laughs) (laughs) there are days you can when you can power through to like you look at the clock it's like oh wow it's it's six Mm. i should leave um and those days are good because you are in that flow and yeah and that mindset but there are days you just like it's 3 30 and i feel crap and i just want to go home and that's and you can you can (laughs) no (laughs) obligations yeah I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if people want to follow your research and see how the thesis writing is going, (laughs) they can follow you on Twitter, right? Yes. That's my Twitter handle. It's Fonty underscore car. That's me. Good. I imagine there's not too many other Fonty cars out there. You're one and only, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Good. And you have a website? Yes. And that's all via Twitter. Okay. It's a WordPress website thing yeah <laughs> no worries all right well thanks so much for coming on the podcast oh, thanks for having me it's and well thanks for coming up to visit us too yeah it's been what a, what a treat Armadale. You're so <laughs> cute. <laughs> and we've been spending this whole podcast trying to get the dog to leave us alone yeah. i think he's desperate for a pet so <laughs> we'll wrap things up shall we <laughs> all right thanks again funty you. And thank you guys for listening. You can follow us on social media at in situ science or check out everything you have online at in situ science.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Bye.